Welcome to Out of the Frame, conversations about photography. I'm Pia Johnson, your host, and this podcast features conversations about photography, creativity, and the world we live in. I'll be talking to other photographers, curators, academics, and researchers about their work, artistic process, and how they feel about contemporary photography today. Out of the Frame acknowledges the people of the Woiwurrung and Bunwurrung language groups of the Eastern Kulin Nation, on whose unceded lands we record each episode from. We respectfully acknowledge ancestors and elders, past and present. It was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Today's guest is Tammy Law. Tammy's documentary photographic practice revolves around issues of migration, diaspora and cultural difference, informed by her experiences of being Asian Australian. Tammy's work explores the complexities of displacement and the emotional, psychological and physical dislocations that occur. Since 2007, Tammy's work has been regularly exhibited across Australia and internationally. In 2021, she was awarded a Queensland Artist Grant to publish her artist book, Cancelled and Removed. In addition to being an established photographer, she has curated and exhibited the work of others. Tammy's freelance photography has been widely published with clients including NPR, Greenpeace, The Wall Street Journal, Broadsheet and The Saturday Paper. Hi, Tammy. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, Pia. Thanks so much for having me. Look, I heard on a really small little interview when I was doing a little bit of research on you, ages ago actually, that you started taking photographs as a way to escape. And I thought it'd be really nice to start with that today and maybe explain what that was about, but also how old you were when you started taking photographs. Yeah, I still have my old Nikon point and shoot, 35mm. That's so cool. From, yeah, I can't remember the exact year I got it because my memory is a sieve. (laughs) Um, But I think it was close to or on the year I turned 10 because I remember it being a milestone, like a special year. And the year after my parents separated, so it was perfect okay. timing for me to escape. Yeah, wow. But that's really young. Ten is that really right just in the world. I mean, obviously, probably tricky time with your parents splitting. So that need to kind of go, actually, I can control my frame. I can go and take photos however I want, right? That would be a really yeah. empowering thing to do as a kid, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. Like, I think I had that sense of... Now that I reflect on it, I do. I did feel that sense of control over something. Well, I felt like I had control over something. Yeah. And I did kind of escape into, like, landscape. I remember clouds, like, finding different clouds was a really big thing. Wow. And kind of, you know, big into Steve Parrish being a kid growing up on yeah. the Sunshine Coast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember his calendars and his books. Um, oh, so great. I think that was something that was 
that drew me into landscape photography at the time. And do you think you still use photography to escape now? Yeah, I think I think it's definitely still a there's still that sense of escapism there. Um, but I think it's it's obviously <laughs> yeah. become a lot more than that. Um, but there's that um, that opportunity yeah. that yeah. The camera. Yeah, know, that's really enables. interesting. And do you think? I don't know. I because my practice is totally not like that. I. And I kind of, you know, I do a number of things like you do, but, you know, the fine art stuff for me, I get to play and escape in the kind of making of the work. But so much of your work, though, is with other people or, you know, telling stories in a in a way that um, it's like they're also using that kind of or you're utilising visual language to tell their story in a really kind of poetic way um so you're not really escaping you're like being able to form maybe another way of telling a story do you think yeah I think that's a good point like I I think I still have um like I still use the camera as this way to enter into other experiences oh okay that makes sense and I think for me that's that's what I mean by escaping. Yeah, like um, stepping out of the real world and into another, like another, a creative space maybe. Yeah, yeah. And also yeah. Um, it does give me confidence. Yeah. I'm generally quite an anxious person, but I feel like when I have my camera I can, you know, that kind of vibrato or, or whatever you might <laughs> want to call it, you know, that yeah. is allowed through through that yeah, interesting. It's like yeah, stepping into the role too. Like I, you know, I take lots of photos of actors, and they always say it's so much easier when they're acting rather than being photographed because mm. it's not them when they're on stage. You know, so maybe for you, it's like, mm. here is my camera. I am, as you say, you get the confidence to be that person with a camera. Yeah. And also, if you've been doing it since you were ten, that's a really long time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think like it is like you, you as well, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, I think that's a, that's interesting. Like it's it's also it does feel like it's that place of comfort in a lot of ways, and I think that was because of the reason and the kind of timing um, yeah. that you know I entered into photography. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so let's talk more about your kind of. I think you call it on your website documentary arts practice. I think we all know very kind of photojournalist kind of style documentary projects historically and there's been a really amazing wave that's opened up probably in the last 20 years of kind of a more speculative documentary or arts documentary that is expansive and I think much more um, or less about telling this kind of journalistic point of view and a much more expanded long-form documentary maybe. So I, I would love to know how you would define this kind of genre that you're sitting within? Yeah, I think I agree with that idea of, you know, the kind of expansive, longer form, that kind of storytelling that allows you to sit with and to sit longer and have a deeper mm. kind of engagement and experience with the stories. I guess for me it's it's always been, I think, a tricky thing 
putting labels on what I do <laughs> because, yes. it, you know, it's <laughs> like, you know, I come from this kind of photojournalistic background where I did, you know, like work experience in that kind of golden era of photojournalism. Like a lot of my mentors mm. were staff, you know, like they were on staff. Yes. Um, so I think coming from that kind of way of seeing and way of being and way of photographing, like I also didn't know what to or, or how to kind of pin myself. It's like when you explain what you do to someone who isn't in the industry, what, what, yeah. the, what do you actually say? <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Your projects feel like, yeah, you sort of fall into this pretty engaged content and, you know, stories and themes and obviously mainly around migration and home and belonging. But before we talk more about that, the thing that struck me though, and I think it is this idea around documentary form, is this idea of ethics. And I know you've done your PhD, so you would have had to go through that really rigorous ethics, um, you know, process. But you have a beautiful statement on your website that describes ethics for you, not just as a set of principles, but a set of questions that are constantly changing and are being reformed or reshaped. And I think for me that really summed up kind of your values as well, like this offering of going, trust me in a way, but also I'm a work in progress. It's always, you know, these questions are informing my projects and my choices. So how did you write that statement? Like how did you come up with that statement? And I guess, you know, how does it inform the work that you do, especially the the photo documentary kind of stuff yeah thanks Pia um I guess shout out to photography ethics center which um I'm not sure if you're familiar with no I'm not but they're based in the UK and they were founded in I think it was 2017 and I met the founder and director who's Savannah Dodd in Yangon um and I think we met in I think it was 2015 And that was when I was doing a project in Myanmar, Burma, and we kind of bonded over practice-based PhDs. Yes, Um, yes. And and hers actually involved looking at ethical literacy in visual research methods. Oh, wow. Okay. So, and we both had kind of supervisors in anthropology and there there was a lot of crossover. So a lot of conversations happened where she was kind of trying to decide on or try to trying to figure out how to implement these Mm. ideas like what does ethical literacy look like in photography do people care (laughs) um you know is it is is it something that professional photographers um, you know are having conversations about and thinking through and obviously we all do right Mm. like you know within our own practices probably internally constantly yeah 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 I think there is that line. I mean, I always joke when I recently had got my PhD when people say, oh, you can put doctor on, you know, and, you know, especially for yeah. airlines. And I kind of go, but I all I can do is photograph the person. I can't really help them. <laughs> like, I mean, I've done basic CPR, but, you know, but it is, you know, I remember always when we used to talk about what's the role of the photographer in those kind of, you know, critical moments. But also I think in bigger, broader projects where you are, you know, holding people's stories, holding really intimate moments or moments of trauma, 
how do we be sensitive to that? How much, you know, I mean, there's so much trust in between that relationship of photographer and subject. And then how does that then get disseminated out into the world, I think? So, yeah, the care around that I think is really, really lovely. But also to, um, you know, I think we're all talking about consent at the moment and those kind of things too. Mm. How do we, yeah, I mean, how do you deal with those kind of decisions or processes for projects when you're working with other people's yeah. stories? Yeah, I, it's it's always something that's kind of something I've been like I've constantly just deeply questioned you know like I'm, I'm working with people yeah. you know I have this big responsibility to them as well you know really personal histories mm. and stories and lives yeah that I you know and I, I think because of this idea of ethical literacy and talking to Savannah about that was you know so pertinent and mm. so important and so actually became one of their ambassadors, oh, one of their cool. advisors. Okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah. nice. Um, so that, and, and those conversations were around, you know, like what do we all personally stand for okay. in our practices? Yeah. And, and so those statements came out of those okay. conversations of, you know, where should we publish these statements? Where should they exist? Yeah, the statement yeah. for me is something I rewrite constantly. Yeah, cool. <laughs> and That's I rewrite each time. Like I approach a new yeah. project and engage with a new community or new family members, and that really yeah. grounds me, you know, in how I engage with participants and collaborators, and then, you know, helps me consider my responsibilities as again and think more deeply about the yes. intention of the work and remind me what's important yeah. about, about that particular body of work or those particular stories yeah yeah wow yeah that's really cool I did I recently put a value section in my mm. website because again I think uh, I got to a point where I was like I need people to know what I stand yeah. for but also they're the I want to connect with mm. people on those kind of things too yeah. so yeah I mean I first account like came across with your work and worked with you a number of years ago for a curatorial project of mine called Chinese Whispers and Other Stories and featured a number of different artists and, the you know, talking about cultural identity and really trying to show different perspectives on cultural difference and belonging in Australia. And the project, I think, was called Away From Home but also a few works from Belonging in Motion. I think there was kind of this bridging bit for you and that all of us like kind of I guess culminated into your first book Permission to Belong and I'm I'm not sure from memory it had a few different iterations like you did a hand kind of concertina one and anyway but the thing that I loved about that work was it was lots of like double images you know there was projections on very suburban places there were people in foregrounds and also in background there was just a whole lot of layers that really I think resonated for me for those stories of kind of being in liminal spaces feeling like you're not here you're not there and they were really everyday familiar families and yeah people and locations so I guess for me it'd be really nice I think if you could share what that project was and, and it, from the sounds of it it was a very yeah long form and around families from Myanmar or Burma yeah yeah it's 
I, I guess my work always, it tends to depart from, you know, like a place of experience and yeah. the intention is always to use it to address things that matter to me and express yeah. it, you know, in a way that yeah. starts bigger conversations in community. And that particular project started when I, a friend actually who was living in Brisbane opened up about their experiences coming here and at the time I was like I felt really ignorant because I was unaware of the political situation this was 2010 and I was okay. I was unaware of the political situation in Myanmar and a lot of us you know we're, we're familiar with Thailand you know <laughs> We're yeah, con- yeah. We're yeah. constantly yeah. in Thailand. But <laughs> yeah. Myanmar's like literally next door, right? Totally. And I think for me it felt like where's the media coverage? Yes. Why haven't we heard about this unrest that's been going on for, you know, over half a century? Yeah. And so for me, like from that Australian perspective, I felt a bit taken aback and I felt like personally really ignorant, yeah. <laughs> having really, yeah. like, really little knowledge about what was unfolding there. And so mm. through the Australian Karen Foundation, so the Karen are a marginalised group in Myanmar and the majority of people resettling from Burma in Australia are Karen. Okay. So I, I learned that some of the, the work that was happening to support people in the refugee camps was happening through that foundation uh, and they were travelling to internally displaced camps, they were travelling into refugee camps and delivering educational resources, setting up schools um, along the border as well as inside. Mm-hmm. And I was invited to join one of okay. on, join in on one of their trips because they were like, oh, well, yeah. you're so interested. Would you like to see you to know, come. Like, what, wow. is, yeah, what is actually happening on the ground mm. and because I was like well I don't want to just be like you know this dead weight <laughs> I just kind of just tra- tra- you know dragging my camera yeah, yeah so I thought oh yeah. well I'll I'll offer up and and teach photography if your students are interested oh, that's fantastic. I don't know you know what you have in the camps like they were, they were only being taught English at the time they didn't have any other wow any other subjects so it's just English at this tech tech school that they'd set up (laughs) so so I came in like with these 35 mil instant cameras and the students went crazy because some of them were actually incredibly visual like visually literate yeah and really really obviously just really keen to do something other than English (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah and how old were they like oh they they were high school age so oh great okay yeah, yeah majority of them were like 14 onward upward okay yeah Yeah. so you know super they would have just been like so many of my students were like we were just so bored (laughs) like we (laughs) were just like oh like our English is getting better but (laughs) but funnily enough like after I left all of these new workshops were brought in by the UN so there were yeah there was gardening (laughs) (laughs) it's like it's like come on can we this was like a a city you know like this this particular camp camp. Mela camp was as big as a city in Australia. Wow. And there was electricity, you know, at times they had running electricity. They sometimes had access to phone network coverage. So there mm-hmm. were opportunities there, you know, for yeah. more <laughs> more yeah, educational wow. kind of opportunities as well. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and during my time as a volunteer, I 
wasn't I, I was kind of just thinking like it's this is a really incredible opportunity for me to just see what is happening and why people are coming mm. you know why people are being forced to leave and arrive in countries like Australia and for me I, you know I wasn't really sure what I was doing with the photographs I was taking until much okay. later yeah. <laughs> until yeah. I applied for my PhD strangely okay. that not long after that same year yeah and that was kind of the beginnings of the PhD and figuring yeah. out how to kind of tell the stories that I felt were about you know the, those really personal experience that were left behind and kind yeah. of left out of the spotlight yeah the interesting thing is though where were the majority of the photographs taken for those or for let's say for permission to belong yeah were they taken here or, or you know, here as in in Australia yeah so I, I think because of how the kind of connection began yeah. I really wanted to understand and just talking to my own community in, in Australia, you know, like, have you heard of what's going on? Yeah, gotcha. Have you heard of the Karen community? Yeah. You know, have you yeah. met anyone from Myanmar? Just those sorts of kind of generic questions. So I yeah. think those were kind of like the basis of and the kind of really early underpinnings of questioning why we hadn't engaged with these yeah. these experiences. Yeah. Yeah, and so for me, I really wanted to turn to the community here and to really start photographing here as well as the family members like back in the camps and those who had been scattered around the world. So I Mm. ended up, for the PhD, I ended up travelling to the US as well as across Australia, so different states like Victoria, obviously Queensland, New South Wales, and wow. I had connections with different family members that had literally been scattered across these places. Wow. So they were all connected yeah. family members. And it, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of that thing of, oh, my auntie lives here in the States and my, my uncle yeah, is, yeah. you know, settled in Perth. And it was just this kind of wow. um, yeah, in, insane scattering of family members that had been displaced and then replaced and, moved you know so it was that yeah kind of the epitome of questioning ideas of home and belonging and what that means through that community yeah I didn't realize there was so much display like in terms like I kind of you sort of think of you know refugee communities or families that coming together and and being a lot of the time you know just settling in one spot I hadn't thought of that idea of this kind of massive mobility or networking of of all those lines and I mean so many of us I think and you know we choose to travel away from our family but like when you have that forced you know separation that's like so intense and I guess yeah so the that project kind of then tells the the conduits of those stories and the layers of that those multiple lands those multiple levels of what it is to feel like you are still connected to that your family and and your home or home in the you know original home yeah and I think yeah I think that the scattering like for me I think at first it, it was a very difficult thing to visually marry mm-hmm. because I I was literally moving through these stories as I was photographing very in very different kind of environments yeah and obviously locations but yeah. But trying to 
remain true to that particular experience I was in with that those those people. So I think every yeah. time the visual language changed ever so slightly because of the kind of relationship I might have with that person or, you know, mm. if I'm working with a translator and that kind of distance. Oh, my gosh, that would be hard. I don't know how you do that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so there was this, yeah. you know, not only like that idea of this is like a, yeah, a huge kind of forced migration, but the kind of layering of those experiences was, I think, unintentionally intentional, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because coming yeah. back and kind of, you know, looking at how I sequence all the images and how they work together really enabled me to reflect on how I experienced those connections as well as how they might. Mm. And I think the photo book is such a beautiful way to hold those stories, like that just the care and the, I mean, I I only experience them as big, beautiful prints, (laughs) but I can imagine just opening and having that ability to kind of feel like you're sitting with those images in a photo book. And and you've done some amazing, like, photo book workshops and a whole range. Like, how did you, yeah, how did you decide on the sequencing and the size and all those kind of things for that project? Yeah, I, I'm not sure if, yeah, we've ever spoken about the Reminders Photography Stronghold workshop with Yumi Goto. No, I'm, like, totally jealous because I think <laughs> um, that just, and that whole... Like that whole crew is amazing, yeah. just, yeah. So maybe, yeah, share a little bit more about that and how. Also, I think, you know, we can then talk about your new book, but, you know, those skills and the way of thinking about mm. photo, making photo books would be really interesting to hear how it affected your work. Yeah, so so Yumi has this very, uh, so Yumi Goto is, is based at Reminders Photography Stronghold and if you had to, I don't know, she's kind of, for, for, in my mind, she's like the photo book queen in, you know, <laughs> yeah, in the, goddess. Yeah. In the Asia, <laughs> Asia kind of Asia Pacific, Central Asia region. Mm. So I think that being able to be a participant in that workshop um, and one of the very first Australians <laughs> to actually participate. Really? Um, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. I think I wasn't the first Australian actually, <laughs> to participate in the, or, yeah, or one of the very early, if not the first. Um, Into, in the workshop. In the yeah. workshop. Um, but Yumi and Masaru, her partner, he's a photographer, and we have, we kind of share a past. <laughs> so this was oh, long, be- this was long before okay. the workshop and, and long before Yumi Goto became Yumi Goto. <laughs> Yeah. But I did a lot of travelling straight after undergraduate, um, my undergraduate degree. So I took off and I was <laughs> just trying to build my portfolio and I was meeting photographers in Japan because I was doing a working, I had a working visa, working holiday visa, sorry, um, for six months in Tokyo and Osaka. And so I was travelling and building my portfolio and I was trying to meet professional photographers and learn from them. And Masaru was one of them. Oh, wow. And Masaru is Yumi's partner, partner in crime. But <laughs> and, and at the time, yeah, Yumi was carving out her career as a curator, as a kind of manager, I guess, of sorts. And then I hadn't seen them for almost a decade until, yeah, I arrived at the, the photo book work. I applied for the photo book workshop and arrived in Tokyo. And it was just this incredible kind of wow. um, cycle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But 
Yeah, so oh, bizarrely, I ended up in that group. And that year was really interesting. Um, there were a couple of participants from Hong Kong as well, which is where my family's from originally. And so there was, and, and obviously like local Japanese um, photographers and artists and architects, you know, there were people from all kind of backgrounds. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. But people who were really embedded in storytelling and making through their hands. These incredible craftspeople, mm. right? In particular, Miki Hasegawa, who was an architect. Also very cool. Who has this incredible <laughs> book, was yeah. one of the kind of mentors that year. So oh, I had this wow. really lovely relationship with her and she, she helped me a lot with figuring out how to create physical covers. We were making boxes. We were kind of building different covers each week to figure out what would make sense for the stories in, inside. So she was really instrumental in helping me physically engage with the actual book as an object. Obviously, Yuni yeah, okay. and um, Jan Rasil, who was the other mentor at the time in that year's workshop, they were really instrumental in sequencing and conceptually looking at how the book worked or how the stories worked yeah. and the narrative worked. Or the narrative, like the, yeah, how you so they were really Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I'm not sure if this is also in coming from art school and studying at Queensland College of Art here and having that kind of tactile engagement with photographs and sequencing that way. There was this really kind of familiar relationship with the way we were engaging with our images. But at the same time, there was this unfamiliar way of grouping the imagery. So, yeah, I wasn't quite okay. across how, like, conceptually they were grouping the images that I had because I had looked at these images, you know, for years, <laughs> for a year almost. Yeah, And yeah, I was wow. kind of at this point where I, I wasn't sure if it was two books or one yeah. or, or a book at all. Okay. So that workshop really allowed for that kind of coming together of and, and marrying of the languages and, you know, sequencing the images so a lot of the kind of projected images into space those became mm, mm. pull-outs and oh, kind wow. of became yeah. posters almost yeah that you entered through you know internal kind of moments within the homes and then they'd kind of like yeah so expand. having to like yeah open them up so there was um I mean isn't that a beautiful <laughs> metaphor though too isn't it just in that action of what it means to like be hidden in there and then open up out and as you say expand as a way of yeah Yeah, so it was kind of like hiding and being revealing yeah or internal external all these kind of dualities that I was looking at yeah wow oh it's so cool it just yeah I also think there's something about that Asian but also that very Japanese way of there's a poetic uh you know I mean all of those incredible terms like wabi-sabi, monoware, <laughs> like all of them, they're just incredibly dense and full. But you look at, like I have so many Japanese photo books and photographers I love and there's just a way of creating images. But as you say, there's, I haven't thought about grouping, but that sequencing and just the way your eye kind of gets led in them, like into into each image but along images, I think. There's something very specific, I think, about the aesthetic that they have. 
I don't know, I find it incredibly sort of evocative. I think yeah. I can get lost in them. Yeah, like Yumi refers to, you know, the photo book as an object. Yeah, So wow. it becomes the, you know, it's not just the stories. It's that this physical thing you know, you're the, holding. The content inside, yeah, it's the actual material, it's the image that you choose or don't choose, yeah. you know, for yeah. the for the cover or the graphic or, you know, yes. it's the... It's every piece and every part that becomes the story as well. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really nice segue to talk about your new book, which (laughs) is currently sold out. I'm like, is there going to be a second release? But in terms of talking about cover and story, and there's also a second booklet too, it's a beautiful-looking book. And the... The cover and just the sequencing and the story and the language is just, it's stunning. So congrats. But also it for me anyways, that thing where the images are so rich and then you read the text and like your stomach falls out. You know, these are really full on stories and knowing that they're all happening here, you know, it's pretty hard, tricky territory. Do you want to, yeah, talk a little bit more about how that came about? And I guess I should say that for those that haven't seen it yet, um, so it's called Cancel and Removed by M33, and it combines photographs, text, archival documents and images and language in multiple languages side by side. And I think you wrote that it explores the stories of those affected by forced migration from Australia. And you kind of... I guess it's sort of on each, you frame it with the person's name, you know, it is very much individual stories sitting through the book. So how did you decide on that layout and that offering to us in that book? Yeah. Yeah, I think the book is, something that I feel is, for me, it's way to really allow people to engage on a deeper kind of level with the, the imagery in the stories I think it's also it's about time because these are very long-term projects and Mm. I think that the stories are so dense as you mentioned as well as um you know there there are really intricate kind of details that I'd like people to sit with for longer and I think the book really allows for that and you can share the book you know you can talk about it with people sitting by your side looking at the imagery together there are kind of these opportunities where the pages might open up for kind of deeper conversations Um, you know even if you're sitting with a family member yeah you just haven't engaged with like these kinds of stories so I feel like the book is is something that I'm finding works really well for the kinds of experiences that I encounter through my work yeah okay and this particular book uh, it was so it was published in early September this year, and it was a project born out of our four-week artist residency at the Museum of Brisbane. And I guess so. Prior to the residency, I'll kind of just give a bit more context yeah, as great. to where it Thank kind you. of came from. But yeah. prior to the residency, I um, so I was pregnant, <laughs> and the museum was incredibly supportive, and they were like, "Well, you know, if you had the opportunity, what?" would you like to focus your project on? So they kind of gave me free reign 
Wow. Which That's is amazing. pretty incredible, like, for anyone in yeah. the, these, working in these spaces of this industry. So, and, and I think because, not because, but a large part of that kind of the catalyst, you know, like of being pregnant, thinking about the next story that I was focusing on, you know, I was kind of already photographing family and looking at family history at the time. But this really gave me that space and opportunity to look at the year 1986 that I was born. So that year, my mother's parents, her siblings, uh, some of her siblings, some of my cousins, they were deported from Australia. And that was the same year my cousin was born. So we were literally born five months apart, uh, same hospital same place in Brisbane in on the Sunshine Coast, Coast yeah. so N- Nambour Hospital yeah yeah and that was the time of when that part of the family were deported so you know being becoming a mother myself and that like thinking about the experience that my own mother would have been going through as she was really heavily pregnant with me you know during this time of incredibly traumatic kind of um, experiences of forced removal of her family members um, that kind of instigated the thinking into this project and looking at more contemporary experiences of deportation, specifically from the kind of Queensland perspective, because the Museum of Brisbane is, mm-hmm. you know, stories about Brisbane, yeah, in, <laughs> in Brisbane, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. and yeah. obviously regional Queensland. Yeah. So work was made, so photographs were made, um, I conducted interviews, with five separate families, including my own. And those then informed kind of the the work that I made for the residency so that people could come in and have conversations, look at, you know, look at what was on the walls. At the same time, I was designing the book. So the conversations that were kind of occurring in the space were really informing how I was sequencing or like the and, you know design choices or what stories needed prioritizing and how and I think the thing that really stood out for this particular project was language that was something yeah okay you know like I'd never I, I don't think I'd really given enough time or enough thought um, but I think this one was really important because the families came from such different backgrounds and spoke you know, the Farsi, Tamil, Chinese. Um, so I thought that was really important to include. Different languages. And yeah, the layout also kind of revolved around language in some ways because of, I guess, the way in which, like, Farsi is literally backwards. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, you can't just copy and paste Farsi okay. <laughs> into an InDesign document. <laughs> it yeah. just, yeah... I was working with, um, you know, professional translators as well as people who spoke the language. And for me, that was more important, actually, like mm. the people who actually just, are, you know, <laughs> speak the language and are a part of that community because they would have more kind of emotive and poetic ways of saying certain things, whereas a professional translator is taught a certain way and um, kind of has to fit within a certain box. Yes. So it was really interesting having conversations yeah. with them about, you know, the kind of meaning of, you know, if you break a sentence here, like in that, in that layer. Oh, it mean, like it 
shifts. Yeah, how does that change the narrative or does it change it? You know, does it impact the way people read that? So that was really fascinating. (laughs) Yeah, and I think you've also been able to do that with adding the archival images and documents in there too because that also kind of, I'll say, punctuates the way that we get insight into each of those people's stories. You kind of start having this picture and then all of a sudden there's, you know, an old family photo or a birth certificate with stuff redacted. You know, like it's just, it feels very real, you know. I think that's the other thing. And also it feels like it could be any of us and I think that is the beauty of it. But moving to the booklet where it is your family and, you know, and you do have texts, like, you you know, you've offered text up, your mum has both... Um, your brother and sister, Michelle and Ben, have, you know, there's just, there's a real picture of the family. I think even some of Ben's, you know, of like, you know, Nintendo, like just the, the, the shape of what your house would have looked like really got that sense of place and that sense of home, even in the kind of chaos, even though you don't have all those memories. But, yeah, that layer of working with family and you said earlier, you know, you're quite close, but how did that go? Like you've also taken photographs of your mum before and I know you've taken photographs of Michelle. How is working with your family? Yeah, that's an interesting question. <laughs> <laughs> and I should say, like, you have a somewhat famous family also. <laughs> you're not, it's not like my family who, you know, it's kind of, you know, they, they have their own lives. Your family are very much in the public domain, obviously with, the family law show and Ben's work and your sister's play, like, or musical plays, you know, like it's, you're all very talented (laughs) Um, and it's fabulous, but that must be something to negotiate, right? Yeah, definitely. You know, I I guess I do have the, (laughs) I do have, you know, the things that have proceeded. So, you know, like my brother's book, for instance, um, and the television show, my sister's plays, like they're all thematically (laughs) crisscrossing over family history. Even if there are fictional elements, there are non-fiction elements um, in all of the works. But I think for me, working with family has come more recently. And I think that's come out of questioning, you know, it's that constant question of negotiation, right? When you're working with communities that aren't your own, it's like, you know, who has the right to tell these stories? Yep. Who is responsible to tell these stories? Yeah. And how are you telling them? And is that appropriate? And is that ethical? So I think, and and it's the the same with your own family, right? Especially when it's your own family who are, (laughs) as you mentioned, in the, in the public spheres and spotlight. But again, I think it always comes back to that, statement of ethics right like do you you know you're constantly negotiating consent and I think for the siblings anyway it's a it's a lot easier for us because a lot of it is public (laughs) in some ways yeah okay oh interesting so that's kind of like because it's out there already like you can actually and I guess it maybe brings you together even more yeah like we are incredibly grateful for how open you know, sometimes too open. <laughs> my mum, <laughs> my mum is. <laughs> um, but she's also very, very proud of us. And I think that comes through in our work. And it means a lot to be able to work with, you know, my, my siblings who have 
contributed, you know, incredibly moving and personal essays in the booklet and, and allowed, you yes. know, for that, those, those essays to be published alongside my mum's words and she helped a lot with translations mm. as well. And, and there is that, you know, for me, that constant negotiation of not re-traumatising my mum as well, like, you know, making sure, you know, yeah, like wow. making course. sure that processes are safe. And it is difficult because, you know, mum's always like, oh, yeah, yeah, like I, I'll read anything, you know. I'll do, I'll, I'm, like, I'm re-, you know, she's also, she's very, very yeah, wow. invested and interested in what we're yeah. doing. Yeah, and, and it is so awesome, wonderful. but it's also, you know, from our perspective, like, you know, we have to be very careful with how we treat those facts and yeah, and uphold that respect, I guess, to the, the experiences that not only, you know, it's not only my mum, but her, yeah. her sisters, her brothers, my cousins. Oh, um, yeah. But also just that idea mm-hmm. of intergenerational trauma, I think. From memory, I think it was Michelle wrote, you know, she'd talk about it just casually and then you'd go on and move on to something else. I remember years ago doing an oral history with my grandmother who li- who was um, in Singapore mm-hmm. for the fall of Singapore and working as a nurse. And it was really fascinating, the stories that she would tell and sometimes it, they would be really long entertaining and funny and she'd talk about all these amazing mishaps and just stories that you think wow I can't even imagine and then there'd be other other areas where she wouldn't be as comfortable and you could see you know see the kind of light go out or she'd skip over something or she'd remember something but then not tell you and you'd see that in that interaction and and I think it's something that I I don't understand I I, you know I'm never going to understand what that experience is let alone then migrating to Australia and whatnot but Mm. it's more that I think that you have a sensitivity to those stories and you have a empathy and awareness and and awareness and I think and also that it does affect more than just that person you know it is Mm. communities it is multiple generations of families Mm. so I understand what you're saying there about yeah being careful and making sure they're safe for all of you really but also I think it's an amazing gift or offering I think I said before for you to share that story with us and now your child and to locate us in that I think it's really important and they're really you know some of the words of your mums are just beautiful and very simple but we all understand what they signify and I think that's really yeah really incredible so yeah thank you I'm going to take a bit of a I guess, sharp turn um, and, and move away from talking about that work because I want to talk about your freelance photography work too because you photograph um, some amazing clients and do a whole lot of, yeah, family work and editorial work. So I wanted to ask, maybe it might be good to situate it in terms of, yeah, your education or training or whatever, but like how did you, how did you get to that point of going, all right, cool, I'm going to be a very successful <laughs> freelance photographer while also doing all of this documentary work and like and now having a family like how do you piece (laughs) all those things together (laughs) yeah I constantly ask myself the same (laughs) (laughs) are you a workaholic like me (laughs) yeah you just never sleep sleep. (laughs) yes (laughs) what sleep no (laughs) well you do things at night like we are right now right Um, now yeah (laughs) no but I think that's a really good question I you know uh, you say like you know very successful 
freelance photographer, but I don't know how successful my freelance career is. I think it really, like, it does come down to work ethic. I am just a bit obsessed with, <laughs> with you know, um, it, it's probably just the Asian, you know, in me. <laughs> just, you just got to hustle. Um, yes. But yep. I, yep. look, I did start out with that dream of, you know, being a photojournalist, news photographer, like, traditional hardcore on the front page etc and I think that comes from you know doing work experience in the golden kind of era with the age with SMH the AAP yeah well you know that kind of dream where photographers were on full-time salaries (laughs) of course (laughs) you know yeah I totally understand (laughs) yes I get it and Um, it, it felt like you know, it was authentic and romantic all in the same go. Absolutely. Like it was just the dream thing. It yeah. was the dream, yeah. right? But I think travelling really shifted my focus in a good way for me, I think, because I think I learnt as well that I don't think like a photojournalist <laughs> or a traditional, oh, interesting. you know, a yeah, traditional wow. photojournalist. Yeah. I, I kind of think it takes time for me to really grow those relationships and I feel like I need to have a relationship with the people that I'm photographing before I can <laughs> before I can delve deeper yeah I mean in saying that I still shoot for you know media outlets news outlets yeah I, I was gonna say you've yeah. got like you know Saturday paper Wall Street Journal yeah. like Frankie like big issue they got so many there yeah and I'm sure you don't get to spend that much time with those making those portraits yeah yeah but I guess it informs, though, like, as all of it does, right? We're all one, we're one person, so. But they're significant jobs and it's, yeah, really different. Like, it's mm. a different skill set, isn't it? Yeah. Like, I definitely, I think it definitely informs how I engage with my documentary practice, you know, for better or for worse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, like the interpersonal skills that are kind of necessary to survive in the documentary world and freelance world. Like that's yeah, just a constant, that. you know, that constant kind of fine tune. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think Yeah, that, and with both, right, like as you said, hustle, but also like with your, like with the person you're photographing, that it's so important. Yeah. Yeah, and it goes both ways, right? Like when I'm, you know, like when I was just working for Brisbane Times recently and I think that even though my shoot, might only be 30 minutes long I'm still like hanging back and chatting (laughs) (laughs) and they're probably like we need you to leave (laughs) um no but I I do I still think that I and it possibly also just personality as well like it's kind of built into me that I that and I I come from like a hospitality background right like my dad owned restaurants Of course. So it's like people's you know, stories, people skills, make them comfortable. Yeah. Service. Yeah. Dad, you know, you deadlines, just, yeah, crazy hours. Do you, do you bring food to your photo shoots? I mean, I that have, would be the ultimate, I have. right? You have? Oh, my God, that is great. That is so Asian of you. I love it. I think I brought, I think I brought, a, I'm not kidding you, a watermelon to someone's house once. Wow. That is that awesome. That is the epitome of Asianness. Asian hospitality. <laughs> no, mangoes. You would have had to bring oh, mangoes. That's just, and then that's like the that's gold fruit. That's too fancy. Right? Yeah. No. <laughs> Queensland <laughs> watermelons. Okay. All right. No, Fair no, enough. no. Fair but enough. I, I do. No, I do think, 
and, and depending, obviously, on the person that you're bringing a watermelon course, or mangoes to, <laughs> whether or not they would appreciate such a gift. <laughs> no, understand, um. understand. But I think there's not many people, I mean, I think there's lots of people that take different types of photos all the time, but sustained, you know, like to actually keep a freelance mm. career going, mm. to keep a fine art, you know, in terms of the photo books, you know, and documentary projects going, you know, that's huge commitment and sustained, and, you know, maybe it is, you know, I could come right back to that first thing of going, it's your escape and it's the place that you feel comfortable in. And so maybe that's the, the sustaining factor for you and the, why you keep picking up the camera, but it is hard work, right? So, yeah, I guess I just wanted to like, I guess what's next or like are you do you think you'll keep doing these kind of things yeah what sort of and especially with the young family now too mm, yeah I think I I think especially in Brisbane right there is this kind of because you still have to pay the bills like you, you know you still have to oh of course yes <laughs> to contribute yes. um to the to to the growing family or to the family as it is I think the next thing is in the kind of documentary part of my life Mm. is hopefully more books like I do really love the book as a place for those stories that I'm interested in to live because Mm. yeah that narrative is so it's so important to have that time and space for those narratives and I think the option for larger numbers of people to really sit with those experiences as well and have a deeper relationship to those stories and a a place that you can, can you know you can share but yeah, I guess I would like more time to focus on the documentary side yeah. of my life yeah. and prioritise that over, over the, the freelance work that I do. Yeah. 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 Um, and I think a lot of that, you know, comes down to like the kind of stories that I do really want to focus on and be able to share. And I do constantly feel like there is that responsibility there because... Mm. Everyone has a story, right? And it's just that a lot of the time people don't think their own story is very important. Yeah, wow. Yeah. I'm trying to kind of educate people about how important their own stories are. Yeah, giving them value. Absolutely, yeah. Giving them space. Yeah. To breathe. To breathe and to be seen and to be held. But I think, Mm. you know, even that thing of, by doing that and putting them out in the world, educating the rest of us as well about those things mm. where, as you said earlier, you felt really naive and you didn't know. And mm. so many of those stories are right here and I think that's so important to recognise. Mm. Thank you, Tammy. It was yeah. such a great conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you asking and allowing me to take part in this series. Out of the Frame is supported by RMIT University Press Play Studio, is produced by Pia Johnson, sound engineering by Alex Edward, music by Steph O'Hara and graphic design by Brent Lederwitz.